0: Greetings, comrades! Well, uh, I'm sorry for being late, cause it has been a while, uh, mostly because of technical issues really, as our microphone decided not to work and then we had problems with editing software and stuff like that, Uh, but hey, here we are. And uh, I found out that I really don't like technical issues. But, well, it's great news as we are back to Stalin. And some other things. And it's going to be fun. Uh, I hope that it will be fun. As, well, um, in other news, I have recently quit smoking, or, you know, using snus or any tobacco products in general, which has been for a week now. And, um, well, the good news is that now I know how food is supposed to taste like, which is good, but I'm uh, much more nervous for now, which is bad. Uh, that might influence the episode. Also, also, we were in Sweden uh, for two days, and I managed to talk with the lead designer of Hearts of Iron 4, but about that uh, I'll I'll make some posts in some other time, when it becomes a bit more relevant and touches World War II. Oh, and uh, while we're still at this little small news segment, we have released another PDRP episode... Which is called Europe is Insane, which you can listen to via PDRP feed, People's Democratic Republic of Podcast feed. That's my other show. It's been featured on this feed. Uh, and it's uh, all on the webpage PDRP.lv or through links available on our social media. And it's not on the main feed of the Eastern Border because, well, um, because there are people who asked for it because apparently some of you have limited bandwidth and don't want to listen to my political show. But for the rest of you, uh, well, this is, um, a really funny kind of completely not serious to our discussion with previously in Europe podcast, which is full with utter nonsense. It's, um, really explicit because I quote Russian commenters and uh, Eastern European commenters on, uh, on various sites. And, uh, it's, it's about why we don't, we, why we don't take stuff too seriously over here in these parts and uh, why the European Union is actually based on cheese and sausage. And it's it's pretty good stuff, so you might want to give that a listen. But right now, it's time to finish up with the news segment and move to the episode proper. So, as I recall, last time we met with our nice comrade Koba. It was 1907, and he had just organized the massive Tbilisi heist. After which, he took his wife and his young kid... Then he moved to Baku, as obviously he no longer had any place in Georgia. Now, Baku in nearby Azerbaijan, with its oil fields, seemed a much better place to avoid the authorities after the robbery, and as it really hosted a lot of these oil workers and it was industrial town, it was also kind of good grounds for proletariat revolutions. And, you know, Uncle Joe was never lazy. So, just a week after the robbery, on the 20th of June, just, like, seven days after the massive robbery in Tbilisi, our great journalist and publisher releases the first issue of Proletariat of Baku, which, by the way, will later change its name to Worker of Baku in 1908. And, by the way, he opens the issue with his own article, Russian Social Democratic Party's Conference in London. Notes from a delegate. Which is double funny as I will repeat that in the previous episode about Stalin, we found out that they voted not to do mass robberies and crimes there, which he did just on his way back. Now, in his article, in his article, uh, Stalin observes that there had been, quote, more genuine workers among the Bolshevik delegates because the Mensheviks had a lot of artisans, semi-skilled men, and intellectuals. Uh, Stalin even points out that the majority of them, the Mensheviks, that is, were Jews. And he's quoting the words of a colleague uh, in this article who said that the Mensheviks were actually a Jewish party while the Bolsheviks were the true Russians. And and an expression which was basically used by the extreme right-wing groups at the time, such as the League of Russian Patriots, that really believed that Russia's salvation was to be th- was to be sought through pogroms, uh, and uh, yeah, Stalin's friend, kind of uh, in, in in his also remarks about about this, uh, which Stalin quotes in his article, kept this observation with a nice suggestion that you know what, uh, and Stalin kind of quotes this that uh, they should consider a pogrom of their own within the party. Then you know, apparently Stalin really liked this idea. this is kind of funny, because, uh, you know, Nazis blame Jews for Bolshevism, and Bolsheviks blame Jews for Menshevism, and it's just all really weird at the end. Because everyone finds a way how to blame uh, certain people. Anyhow, after writing this uh, anti-Semitic article about the Mensheviks, Stalin would carry on uh, working in the newspaper, participating in various demonstrations and organizing even more armed squads of, of various, various criminals and, you know, these um, so-called partisan squads, just like the ones who created this uh, Tbilisi robbery. He will find some time in August of 1907 and will visit the Second International Socialist Congress, this time in Germany. But, but, while he was away, his wife, Kato Svenice, became seriously ill. So, her family wrote to Stalin to bring her back to Georgia, where she could be better taken care of. So, in mid-October, he did just that, but he returned back to Baku himself as it seriously was not safe for him to be in Tbilisi at this time. And uh, what exactly happened later is actually another matter of debate, just like quite a lot about uh, Stalin and the related things of this. But what we do know is that Cato, or Cato, the one true love of Stalin, the woman, as he spoke about her, who could warm his heart and bring some emotion in Koba's mind, was dying. He received message about this in the second half of November and drove off to her in the same day. She died in his his arms in Tbilisi in 5th of December 1907, or 22nd of November by the old style. Her death sent Stalin into a deep grief, and it is reported that uh, he said that with her died my last warm feelings for humanity. And apparently we have another report that says that uh, while putting his hand on his chest during the funeral ceremony, he stated to to his pals, my heart is a desert now. And this is interesting because this is also the moment where Stalin will finally become Stalin. Starting with the death of Cato, he'll use his Koba nickname less and less often. He will just often just shorten it to Ko or just... K, and he will more and more often call himself by the name that we know him now. Uncle Joe, Stalin, Man of Steel. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a sad origin story for a sad man, but it is how it is. And, uh, obviously, I do have to ruin the mood here by saying that this did not stop Stalin from killing most of her first wife's family during the purges later, but, uh hey, it's not like you expected him not to kill someone. But again, um, Cato's death itself is a bit of interesting factoid and a bit of mystery. We do know that she was ill and suffering from tuberculosis, but there are also reports that on her 13-hour trip back to Dublisi from Baku, she apparently had drank some infected water and contracted typhus. And this this is known because of her family-later-recalled symptoms, which are usually attributed to this disease rather than tuberculosis. Now, and um, here I start some of my complaints because what doesn't make much sense with all of this situation is that... uh one of my sources, Simon Sebag Montefiore, in his 2003 book, Stalin, the Court of the Red Czar, writes that she died from tuberculosis. While on his 2007 book, Young Stalin, another book that I used, he writes how a Kato's cousin, Mariam Svanidze, who was still lucky enough to be alive at 109 years old in 2005 when he met her personally, Uh, She apparently told him that uh, she remembered Cato's illness clearly. Quote, I was then nine years old. Cato and my father got typhus at the same time. Now, books say Cato died of tuberculosis, but I can assure you, it was typhus. Both got the red rash. We knew if the rash went black, they would die. My father's rash stayed red. He lived. But I remember that Cato's turned black. Then... All the family knew she would die. And she did. Now, this would be a minor detail. If it wouldn't show some tendencies... ...and misinformation of the Western authors... ...and the fact that even though Stalin was a terrible, terrible person... ...there are also some who have attributed to him... ...some really foul and villainous things... ...that he actually never committed. So if I want to be better than that, if I want to be honest... I do have to point this out. And Kato's death and related issues is one of the problems here. You see, like I mentioned earlier in these uh, Stalin series, one of the books that I use for the show is Alex de Jong's Stalin and the Shaping of the Soviet Union, which was written in 1986. <laughs> and, uh, he has a part about, about Stalin's wife there, uh, but it, it, it is written in Soviet era, but it contains simply an insane number of errors when it comes to Stalin's first wife. Sure, some of that can be attributed to lack of documents during the Soviet era, but some of that stuff is just, just plain weird. For one, Jonge, or Jong mistakes Kato for her mother, Yekaterina Svanadze, <laughs> which was called Keke, that was her, her mother's nickname. and And he just treats her as Stalin's wife, not even mentioning Cato. Secondly, well yeah, he obviously complains about the lack of sources, which is okay for a Western historian from Britain writing about this during this era. But still Still, what he does finally is that um he buys in into one of the weirdest studies about Stalin ever, which is tied to this. And, I, uh, and uh this is this is the error that uh Western historians sometimes make, and this will be illustrative of this, because you shouldn't trust all the sources. And uh, I'm sorry, but I will quote at length here and offer some comments on this. See, the de Jong, in his book, uh, and I'm quoting from the chapter 6 exile here, he argues that Stalin had extremely puritanical attitude towards women, and he was like extra conservative and, you know, um extra mean. And, uh, yeah, he also, he also here, while stating that uh, this says that most likely the absence of information about Yekaterina or Keke, Svanidze, is, is kind of curious because, because really, uh, it must be hidden due to the fact that Stalin must have definitely abused his wife. Now, like I mentioned before, his, his, Keke was the mother of his wife, therefore, you know, it's, it's kind of, uh, hard to, to say things about this, but, um, but what he gets what he gets out of this situation is is an interesting quote here because um, <clears throat> he writes quote "Yekaterina it would seem worshiped her husband who responded by acting the bully all accounts we have of his treatment of women wives mother daughter suggests that he was foul-mouthed disrespectful and capable of physical violence he despised gentleness which he confused with weakness and persecuted his gentle wife accordingly" And, and now comes uh, the, the shocking part. While working in Baku in the 30s, a future inmate of the Gulag, Pyotr Mozhov, mm, heard ta- a tale of an old man who had rented rooms to comrade Koba in 1908. Mozhnov was secretary of the District Committee of the League of Young Communists. A typical League of Young Communists leader ardent and full of pep, he imagined himself gathering the activists to listen to an old man's recollections of the leader. Unfortunately, the old man proved unhelpful. Quote, We don't know anything. We remember nothing. Someone has led you astray, he told the group of eager young people. Suspecting that something was not quite right, Možnov returned a few days later with a bo- bottle or two. The old man and his wife greeted him very differently. They found some snacks, took a drink or so, and began to talk freely. <clears throat> and this is, this is from this uh, Pyotr Možov's story, apparently. What did, <clears throat> what did you bring that crowd of people here for? Do you think such shameful things can be revealed in front of just anyone? Yes, it is true that Koba and his wife Keto Yeah, and this is Here it's called Keto And, and for some reason he calls her Kek. But whatever Lived here in 1908 Listen, what kind of revolutionary is he? Scum, that's what he is, a swine Keto was pregnant then And he used to curse her in the most disgusting way And kick her in the belly We tried to look after her She came down with TB afterwards When Koba came, came home drunk He always cursed her till he fell asleep the old man drained his glass in a gulp and said despondently, "Listen, don't you know what kind of leader you've got in yourself? Ay, ay, ay." Although this, uh, <clears throat> and then, then Jong at least has, uh, has the kind of. <laughs> the integrity to, st- to comment on this this quote by this, this person that uh, although this is unsubstantiated gossip from a prejudiced source it does not portray Stalin out of character moreover as wives throughout the grain spirit belt can testify the fact that their husbands mistreat them when drunk is not to say that they do not love them and then John uh, writes that mm, as, as a matter of factly Stalin's wife gave birth to a son Yakov in 1908 and very shortly afterwards she died Oh boy! Well now, this is, this is the full quote about what, what this Alex de Jong's book written in, uh, written in 1986 tells about all this, all this interesting story about, uh, about Stalin's wife. But this is, uh, crazy because I, I was surprised there because all of the Eastern sources, all the sources available to me, and, like, if you actually go and, and talk to the families, all the Eastern sources are very precise about ...how Stalin found out about Kato... ...yes, it was Kato, not Keke... Uh, ...Kato's illness and Kato's death... ...and how she died in Stalin's arms... ...and, uh, you know, it would be really hard for me to imagine... ...that, you know, uh, domestic violence was more widespread back then... ...than it is now, and especially in eastern parts... ...but uh, it would seem extremely strange that uh, Stalin himself... ...even though a very harsh man... Would, would kick his pregnant wife in the belly uh, while, while basically he described her as the only thing that kept him loving humanity and kept him sane. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about Work A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. And, and this is one of the things, and apparently uh, the source of this comes from certain mm, Antonov Ovsienko a uh a technically a a Soviet historian or how he calls himself and I know that that he has been printed some time in the west, but he's really uh a terrible source, and I'm not using him because one of the most one of the most interesting things is that um that this Pyotr Možnov technically only appears in in this book of the Zhang and he isn't he isn't really in any other of my sources also um he also only appears in, in this of book. it's it's just the fact that this m apparently who according to john was a high party position of this like komsomol thing and he just doesn't appear anywhere else and he hears this somewhere and how did he even tell this to this historian i mean um I'm not, I'm not saying that Stalin was, was a good person or anything. Also, this story apparently was first remember, retold by Ovshenko, who heard it from Mozhnov, and then also another historian who, who's, uh, who says this information in this very wrong way is, uh, for example, Robert Tacker, who also states that, uh, that in 1908, Yakov was born. And then, by the way, Robert Tacker, again, uh, states that she died a year later, which is in 1909, which is like two years of errors here. Uh, But the thing is, if, if you're going to criticize Stalin for his crimes, and if you are going to kind of expose him to other people... Then you really shouldn't lie, and uh, this is just one of the examples, and another reason why it's kind of hard for me to do these episodes, and why. Well, I've actually sent some, sent some Western books, and I've acquired some, and thank you for that, and uh, and I'll be using them. But this is this is why, when talking about the Soviet Union, I must always double check things, and and the weirdest part is that. Um, it even, it even because uh, this theory about 1908 has even made it to English Wikipedia, and I uh, posted an edit and I proposed to remove it because uh, this is one of, one of the cases where it's really really documented and, and everything. And uh, if you if you sometimes sometimes get some really crazy stuff, then uh, then yeah, well just 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 know that as much as I dislike Stalin, I respect him in a very strange way, because, uh, it, it, it's like, you, you gotta respect supervillains, and Stalin definitely was one, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a strange way, it's like you respect Genghis Khan as well, but the thing is that I don't want to, I don't want to make Stalin worse than he already is, well, this is what the Jong does, and, um, I don't know. I I read I I read on on the like the Russian historical sources. Cuz sadly I haven't acquired any books by this Antonov of Sheenko myself, but I have read a bunch of reviews and uh, Russian and like Soviet historian comments on him uh, about his errors. And they say that he's one of the one of the least trustworthy sources around there about Stalin. So if you so if you happen to have some of his books in English about them be very 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 careful about this. But yeah, this is just one of the ways how even the death of of Stalin's first wife is being used for for some agenda because uh, even even though praising Stalin for things he didn't do was glorious here, Apparently I have encountered that uh, vilifying Stalin even more for things that he also didn't do in the West also might get you some fame. But I'm not here to get that kind of fame and uh, I have been... I have been um, kind of called that, I have been called that I only look at the bad things. This is not it. I'm not going to claim that Stalin beat... uh, (laughs) That Stalin stomped his uh, pregnant wife's stomach while drunk. While well, she was ill with tuberculosis because Stalin's wife wasn't even there w- w- because Stalin wasn't even near his wife when she got ill with tuberculosis for one, I will criticize Stalin for what he does, but uh yeah well, this was a weird tangent, but i hope you- I hope you really got some understanding on why really uh, all this Soviet history part tends to be difficult to study sometimes okay b- back to the narrative now so b- back to back to Stalin now. Mm. so Stalin is crashed now he's, he's come down from the death of his wife and he's so down that even though he continues to participate in various Bolshevik activities and protests and carries on with writing for the Baku uh, the, in, uh, he writes for this newspaper he gets a bit sloppy now this will not happen often but it does now so in the 25th of March 1908 Stalin gets arrested and is put in Balinovskaya jail in Baku, where he is put under the name of Gajoza Nijaradze as a common political prisoner. They have no idea that he's actually Stalin, where he will spend eight months while waiting for his trial. Now, for normal people, this would be a traumatic uh, experience, know that this isn't nearly the first time he's spent in jail, but for Stalin... Well, see, Tsarist prisons, as mentioned previously, were a nice place for him to, you know, collect his thoughts, get over issues, run party activities, uh, organize more newspapers, get elected as party leader, bash Mensheviks, study Esperanto for for more more knowledge, try to memorize things, discuss things because it's basically, you know, this this whole prison life at uh, this era is uh, is full with political prisoners. And it's and it's full with revolutionary ideas of all sorts. There are reports of, like, anarchists, socialists, Mensheviks, uh, pe- some people who are actually called Tolstoyans, because of Lev Tolstoy, who was a Christian anarchist and a pacifist that, uh, which reminded me while reading this that I should make an episode about Lev Tolstoy and his Christian anarchism ideas. But yeah, he just sits there and debates revolutionary ideas while in this prison. Uh, by the way, his son, Jakob, is living with Keito's parents through this period and since her death, so, uh, you know, at least one person is okay for a while in, in this story. But, yeah, he's, he's, while, while he's spending his eight months in, in his prison, he's just doing, you know, uh, the, the usual. And, and we have a report of this. Uh, see, he had a, he had a fellow inmate, which was another socialist revolutionary, and he was named Simon Veserchak. Now this is actually documented by Soviet sources. Don't worry, and uh, he he oh, kind of uh, communicated with Stalin a lot in prison, and uh, it was weird because he actually praised Stalin a bit. Apparently, uh, Stalin really preferred during recreation time to kind of to keep to himself, and while while others gathered in like little groups and obviously debated the various revolutionary ideas, and he just you know was was walking around alone. And, you know, thinking thinking about it himself. And this Vereshchuk, he reports that Stalin was apparently impressive, but unpleasant to argue with. Apparently, Stalin was extremely rude and was never, <clears throat> quote, never too proud to hit below the belt. When he wasn't using terrible swear words, uh, just like I do sometimes in my show, his speech was dry and humorless. Uh, But one thing that is always, always remembered about Stalin by everyone else, which is why this is extra believable, is that Veserchak reports that Stalin had an impressive memory. Stalin uh, always could recall things in detail. And that apparently a lot of reports also come that this is a skill that Stalin developed while in seminary. Because in orthodox practices, a lot of the Bible quoting comes from your head. And and the sermons are long, and it's a skill very necessary for uh, for the priests of the Orthodox um, Orthodox denomination here. And yeah, right now Stalin had changed his ideology from Orthodox from Orthodoxy to, well, Marxism. Stalin could just easily swap this out and and do this. And Verischak writes, quote. Mm, when you looked at his primitive brow and his small head, it seems that, if you would break it open, it would spew for- forth capital, and the entire other works of Marx, like an exploding gasometer. Marxism was his element, and in it, he was invincible. Once he has made up his mind on the subject, nothing could shake him, and he always had an appropriate quotation to hand. He made a tremendous impression upon young, politi- politically inexperienced party members, and in Transcaucasia, he had the reputation of being a second Lenin. Which, yeah, this uh, I- this is interesting, because it, uh, it follows quite closely to the other things said about Stalin, and as we'll, as we'll learn further on... Because this memory of detail and memory of names will uh, come, to St- come very necessary and very, be very useful to Stalin, especially when it comes to details about the war, for example. As, as this will help Stalin be the generalissimus and organize his work. And, you know, of course, he, he memorized all the details and uh, we can see the inner workings and the beginnings of the man to come. Now, the most interesting thing about this imprisonment that I found, the most interesting, personally at least, is that he did not run away from prison this time. Instead, sometime in October 1908, Stalin actually got his trial. And, uh, by the way, they still don't get that he's Stalin. So this uh, Nizhwaradze, as as a common political prisoner, as uh, as this time was deemed dangerous to civilized society, and he was sentenced to two years in exile. So, Stalin was sent from this Baku prison, another prison, uh, to slovichet in Volodgov province. And Volodda province is an interesting place, by the way, as it's uh, technically in the European part of Russia this this oblast this province is bordering and is just east of st petersburg oblast it's just you no know, the, the administrative district just right next to it and what's cool about it is that it was a political exile destination a very popular one since the 15th century and it's kind of tagline among the people during this era is mm, siberia but close to the capital as st petersburg's capital this time and also, remarkably, because, you know, I Googled, I Googled up the place and wanted to know more, because just, uh, you have to know where exactly someone is exiled, and my research came up with the fact that apparently, it is also known by its butter. It's kinda like Wisconsin, but, uh, Russian. Because apparently, in 1871, the Danish merchant, Friedrich Buhmann, apparently opened a specialized butter factory in a manor of Fominskoye, which is about 13 kilometers from Vologda. And apparently it was the first butter factory in Russia. And since then, well, Vologda has became, become the center of butter and dairy industry, and apparently they even invented a special type of butter with a taste of nuts. Oh, I haven't tried it myself, but hey, if you can get it, maybe it's, it's still there, they're, they're still producing it, and uh, because the region is known for its dairy even now. So, you know, butter and exile, they go hand in hand, comrades. Just as, well, apparently, Stalin exile, who, guess what, won't really care about any minor issues like this. For example, he even does get ill with recurring typhus himself, and is in hospital from the 8th to 20th of February 1909. But Stalin gets better. Stalin always gets better. And this time, apparently, according to Khrushchev, he's helped by booze. And this time the information comes from another old friend of ours, Nikita Khrushchev. Hello, Nikita. Uh, he writes in his memoirs, which are just called like that, uh, Khrushchev remembers. <clears throat> I have never forgotten how he described his exile. The tale helped to explain why he drank so much. He was sent somewhere in Vologda province. Many political and criminal convicts were sent there. Stalin used to say, there were some nice fellows among the criminals during my exile. I hung around mostly with the criminals. We'd see who among us had a ruble or two, then we would hold our money up to the window, order something, and drink every kopeck we had. One day, I would pay, the next, someone else would pay, and so on, in turn. These criminals were nice, salt-of-the-earth fellows, but there were lots of rats among the political convicts. They once organized a comrade's court and put me on trial for drinking with the criminal convicts, which which they charged was an offense. How ridiculous. End quote. And now, even though it sounds fun, remember that um, remember that Khrushchev actually will completely go against Stalin and blame him for everything, even though he himself was also a mass murderer. And while this is fun, this is the reason why we shouldn't take his words as complete facts, though, because what we do know, uh, from document, for, from more documented sources than, uh, Russian, Russian leaders' memoirs, is the fact that he escapes. Again! <laughs> uh, and he will spend the next months <clears throat> gathering resources, also known as expropriation, from his exile mates, and he will escape uh, simply by buying a train ticket to St. Petersburg on the 24th of June. Yeah, he. Basically, just left with a train to Saint Petersburg, to the capital, because he got money from other people who were exiled, from anarchists and Trotskyists and, and Tolstoyists and everyone, which is just so weird. But yeah, he will just go to the country's capital, Saint Petersburg, where he will stay for a couple of days while obviously planning his way back to Baku, as you know, it's the capital after all, and he hasn't been a hasn't been uh, hasn't been there for a lot of times. And, and there, he will hang out with the local Bolshevik elite. In a conspirational apartment called uh, Conspirational Apartment Number 2, which is the most precise information that I was able to acquire about this, and being the frantic journalist and the organizer, he offers to start a legal central party newspaper that would get published throughout the whole Russia, and argues for a necessity of such a thing. And obviously, knowing how Stalin tried to control the presses for his own political gains... This might be his, his kind of one of the more um, important steps of, uh, of get, of getting to power. Now, once he goes back to Baku, which is pretty, pretty soon, just, uh, the early July, because he stays in St. Petersburg for about a week, he's back to his usual stuff. You know, journalism, organized crime, revolutions, party paperwork, uh, pushing, uh, bashing the Mensheviks, all the all the casual things which I'm actually, you know, try. I'm I'm a bit tired to put them on timeline because you know uh, we've skipped over almost four years now. But uh, at this point, at this point, I understood that that may maybe just just maybe some of you aren't interested in the complete listing of all the Stalin's articles in general. Although I uh, I have have read a lot of them, but he does this with a renewed zeal. And I mean, I would I would do so too if I would just escape from exile. Uh, even just in Volgore, still north, for like the third time in a row. And he works really hard on realizing this all-Russia communist newspaper project, both of idealism and because of his, you know, willingness to get more power, and this idea comes to fruition in the 22nd of January 1910. When, basically, the party in general finally accepts, after all his letters and articles, he, uh, the party in general accepts and publishes Stalin's pamphlet about the necessity of such newspaper. And another all-Russian congress is called. That is, things are actually starting to move now, and everything seems fine and dandy now for comrade Stalin. Except, except, he starts to work on this, but, on the 23rd of March, it is the third ara- third arrest of Stalin. Uh, this time he's arrested as another political prisoner under the name of Zachariya Kirkorovich milkijanits And he's thrown in back in the, Balio- in the Baliovsky prison in Baku at the very, very same day. It's like home to him now by this point, I think. And, uh, yeah, at the same time, by the way, on the very same day, uh, and it comes out a paper where Stalin is praising a German German socialist August Bebel which is interesting because Stalin rarely, rarely praised anyone but but uh, this is this is a, an important point because previously uh you know I go through this timeline in order as I do my research so there are things that I found find out only later about any given period of time, because you know I know I know over overall I know the overall story, but details uh, have to be researched by me by now. And apparently, uh, what I found out is that if uh, if in the early episodes I had some doubts and thoughts that Stalin, again according to a lot of rumors, was a secret agent of uh, of and the, like the Zare secret police. Um, and some actually kind of uh, called them that his nickname could be Ficus. Then this this apparently uh, kind of this arrest, this final arrest on the twenty third of, uh, of March, kind of puts puts this down, uh, as written in in the newspaper Rodin, in uh, number five, uh, written in nineteen eighty nine, uh, by uh, Peregudov and Kaptylov uh, two of the two of the researchers of the kind of uh, Perestroika era Soviet history. Which really, really read a lot of sources there. They write in this, uh, about the fact that, uh, there is, there is a report from certain Yerikov, obviously not a real name, who actually was a, an agent of uh, Stalin's, uh, who was actually an agent of the Tsarist, this Ahrank, who actually was this so-called Ficus, and he writes a report in this very same 23rd of March, uh, to his superiors, that he had uh, managed to secure an arrest of one Koba, who was uh, apparently uh, who was the leader of the Baku's Committee of Social Democratic Party. So yeah, we actually have a documents of the guy whom some historians, including uh, previously mentioned <clears throat> previously mentioned guy guy who said about the about the 1908 Mr. Antonov of Sienko and some others, uh, like Alexei Adamovich, whom I also don't really trust, and uh, another, uh, another kind of fanatical historian of Khrushchev's era, which is why you shouldn't trust Khrushchev's memoirs that much, either, Olga Shutunovskaya. Uh, this theory that Stalin, you know, in, in a matter of vilifying him later on even more uh, in, in this post-Stalinist era, yeah this this also is documented, and Stalin wasn't an agent of Tsaristochranka. now does it make him any any better or anything like that? No it doesn't. Its just that um yeah, now I can say this this fact for certain, but we will end with nineteen ten here and with his arrest this time, where he goes back to prison, and the next episode we will well look on to the further uh escapades of Uncle Joe. In the prison of the czarist era. Once again. Stalin just can't can't stop getting arrested and running away from it and causing trouble now, can he? And now, now it's time for the usual. Let's do some Ask Uncle Joe. Today's Ask Uncle Joe segment will be extra-depressive! Why? Because this is an important question which I really want to answer right now, because I will not really want to deal with this situation when we'll get to World War Two. because today's question comes uh, comes uh, is about a person that we mentioned today. Hey, mm, could you tell us more about your son Yakov, Uncle Joe? Uh, yeah, I mentioned him, uh, and as you know, St- Yakov mostly lived, at least when he was a kid, with his uh, with his uh mom's family, well, when his mom's family after Cato's death was uh killed by Stalin during the purges, then he kind of moved in with dad but uh really, Stalin didn't really particularly particularly uh fond of him, and we have um we have some quotes of Uncle Joe about his son, and one of them is mm, he can't even shoot straight." Uh, this quote comes from the moment when um, when his father, Stalin, noticed that Yakov had tried to shoot himself because he really wasn't wasn't the favorite kid of Stalin, and also his romance options had just failed and he was just laying and bleeding out there. But yeah, <laughs> what, what Yakov is known most for, uh, and, and what is the saddest tale, is that really he was deprived of, of all attention from his dad, uh, he never knew his mother... His family was killed by his dad, and he was kind of he, he didn't really have a good relationships with his later half siblings either. And when the war came, when the war came, Yakov joined the Red Army at the outbreak of the war in the East in June 1941, and he was serving as a lieutenant in the artillery. And apparently, on the first day of war, his nice father Stalin told him to quote go and fight. Well, which he did and apparently uh, his his family and his sister especially would later write that he was he was peace-loving gentle and extremely quiet but he never made even the slightest attempt to avoid danger as a soldier but um and this this Nadezhda n- n- And his half-sister Svetlana Aliyev would write that Stalin, my father, moreover hadn't had any use for him, and everybody knew it. So no one in the higher echelons of the army gave him any special treatment. Which is pretty sad, because he couldn't really manage to serve a lot in the army. Because on the 16th of July, within just a month of the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union, Yakov was captured and taken prisoner. And seeing as Stalin personally considered all prisoners of war as traitors to the motherland, and those that surrendered he called, quote, malicious deserters, and uh, as he said that there are no prisoners of war, only traitors to their homeland, he really didn't care about it. So, you know, Yakov himself, according to accounts given to the people uh, in his uh, kind of camp where he was held as a POW, felt that he had failed his father and under interrogation he admitted uh, that he had tried to shoot himself and you know by this point uncle joe probably would have supported this idea and preferred that he had see uh, as we will learn later the families of pows or deserters for the soviets they really faced extremely harsh consequences for um, for the rest of, for the failures of their sons because in the soviet era if your son was in the army and fighting against the Nazi invasion and happened to get get captured as a prisoner of war, you would be sent to Gulag. And uh, obviously you couldn't... Stalin will not send Gulag to himself, and, and after all, Yakov was Stalin's son, but it's not like Stalin cared or spared his family. See Yaakov at this point was married to a Jewish uh, Jewish lady named Yulia. And uh, even though Stalin was quite anti Semitic, he was quite fond of his daughter-in-law. Or so the sources in this case uh, Allyev and later Wives of Stalin and, and his uh, and his uh his half sister would state. But uh After Yakov, his own son was captured. This Yulia was arrested, separated from her three-year-old daughter, and sent to the gulags. Uh, After two years, uh, Stalin sanctioned her release, but, say, she still had to pay for the fact that uh, that Stalin's son got captured. Now, of course, the Germans made uh, quite a lot of propaganda of... Yakov's capture, dropping leaflets in the Soviet Union that claimed that the great leader's son has surrendered and was feeling alive and well, and that everyone should follow the example of Stalin's son, and that Germans urged the Soviets to stick your bayonets in the earth. But uh, not like Stalin cared, because Germans made the the fatal mistake of presuming that Stalin cares even about his own family members, or, in fact, anyone. Scene uh, 1943. Stalin was offered the chance to have his son back. Because just after the Germans had been defeated at Stalingrad, and uh, their field marshal, and, well, quite a talented man in military terms, Friedrich Paulus, was taken prisoner by the Soviets, which was their highest-ranking capture of the war, the Germans decided to offer a swap. They offered to trade Yakov for Paulus. And... uh, Stalin obviously just refused, stating that I will not trade a marshal for a lieutenant, and as harsh as it may seem, you know it was very typically kind of cold, harsh logic of Stalin's. Why would his son be freed when you know <laughs> sons of the other Soviet families suffered, and Stalin is reported saying, "You know what would other fathers say?" Although, this might just be a piece of Soviet propaganda, as this, what would other fathers say, comes only from the Soviet sources describing this event, and uh, I'm kind of surprised by the fact that uh, we have some information about Yakov as such. Well, mostly we have it about his later life, because Stalin didn't care about Yakov enough to actually write about his early life, which is why I will not be mentioning Yakov further on, unless he specifically comes up, because his or the early life is all I know about his early life and what he's doing is uh, what I've mentioned so far in these episodes, and he does not appear often in the uh, in the biographies of Stalin himself. And later on, well, the Germans kept kept records of their prisoners of war, and um, And interestingly interestingly enough. Um, well, sadly enough, it's not interesting. It's just that Maybe it's my, my cigarette deprivation kicking in once again. But uh, Yakov died, 36, on 14th of April, 1943. The Germans, after the war, maintained that they shot him while he was trying to escape. But uh, we have other reports. We have other reports because uh, Yakov was friends with uh, Polish inmates. And was friends with the Poles captured by the war, because, unlike his dad Stalin, Yakov apparently was was a person with some consciousness and emotions. And uh, as Germans had massively publicized the news for propaganda material, uh, the mass murder of Polish officers of of Katyn, and as Germans had discovered this mass grave in 1943, and it was heavily publicized. uh, the Polish inmates from the same POW camp, even though, again, this was denied by Germans who always claimed that they shot him while he was trying to escape, He, uh, the, his his Polish inmates claimed that a German officer basically told told Yakov uh, that uh, look what you bastards did to these men, what kind of people are you? Which is ironic coming from a, a German officer right, whose, whose own people are committing... <laughs> committing terrible, terrible atrocities at this time, but uh, Yaakov took it to heart. He was a kind soul and certainly didn't deserve the treatment his father gave him and he really didn't deserve the father he got. And according to his befriended Polish inmates, Yakov Djukashvili died by throwing himself onto an electric fence. But you know, like Stalin would state, there is a person there's a problem. No person, no problem. And uh as scary and terrible as it would be, <laughs> he really didn't consider his own son Yaakov a problem. So yeah, this is uh this is what you'll get from me for Yakov, but uh we'll mention his, his other sons later on. So sorry for the depressing ending it's just that uh sometimes you have to tell the sad stories as well with with uh, the good things cuz we are getting into so, so far we've we've been looking at Stalin who's just this brave and brash and heroic guy and uh I want to do this like in these uh, like in these good TV series you know uh good TV series aren't exactly chronological they always they always have some flashbacks and, and you, you, you get to see where, you get to see like both both where the hero, in this case the villain, will end up and how he got there and this is what I'm trying to do here. And, uh... <laughs> and yeah, the interesting part about all this situation is that Yakov is so little known, they only learned about his existence while researching for this podcast. And uh, sad tale what happened to him. So this is about it, folks. Uh, the book is also coming out soon, and uh, I just sometimes, because of all this, feel that it's it's hard for me to conduct this research, and I hope that you'll understand. But I want to push through these series, and I want to impart on you this whole stealth situation that's going on here. Food for thought, thought to speak. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Tyler, Alert